0: Before we start, just a quick content note to say that today's episode contains discussions of childhood sexual abuse. Hello and welcome to Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author.
1: And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of Berlin's Schwulis Museum.
0: Last week we discussed a very senior British politician, Jeremy Thorpe, who was implicated in a conspiracy to murder plot. Who are we talking about this week, Ben?
1: Well, we're going to be returning to the highest levels of mid-century English uh, cultural uh, and political production, uh, but in a slightly different way. And I want to begin by painting another one of my pictures. Chaos, sings the writer. Chaos and sickness, what if all were dead? In his white hat and suit, sweating under face paint, distorting the shape of his mustache, he leans on his white cane. Oh, perilous sweet death, Socrates knew. Socrates told us. Does beauty lead to wisdom, Phaedrus? Yes, but to the senses. Can poets take this way, then? For senses lead to passion, Phaedrus. Passion leads to knowledge. Knowledge to forgiveness, to compassion with the abyss. Should we then reject it, Phaedrus? The wisdom poets crave, seeking only form and pure detachment, simplicity and discipline. But this is beauty, Phaedrus, discovered through the senses. And senses lead to passion, Phaedrus and passion to the abyss. He closes his eyes, his rused cheeks slump. In the distance, a boy dances in the waves. And now, Phaedrus, I will go, he sings, and you will stay here. And when your eyes no longer see me, then go home too. This is the end of Death in Venice, as set to music by today's subject, the composer Benjamin Britton, a central figure of 20th century music, and the national composer that Britain had been searching for since the death of Henry Purcell in 1695. A fervent pacifist, anti-nationalist, and homosexual with a deep, complex, and troubling love of children, specifically adolescent boys, Britain, through the strength of his music and through the nation's desire to have its own homegrown musical hero, became an utterly unlikely national celebrity. A photograph, for example, taken in 1967, shows two couples walking in formal dress towards the entrance of a new concert hall being opened at the Summer Festival at Aldborough, an English town on the Suffolk coast. The two couples are the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, and Britain and his partner, the tenor Peter Piers. This was only 10 years after the Wolfenden Report, the same year that sodomy was decriminalized in the UK. In 1953, four years before the Wolfenden Report was released, Britain presented at the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden, a new work written on commission from the royal family to celebrate the queen's coronation, the work, Gloriana, about Queen Elizabeth I, featured a gay composer, gay librettist, gay director, gay conductor, gay choreographer, gay producer, was based on a book by a gay writer and starred a gay tenor who was also the boyfriend of the gay composer. And in preparation to put the opera on, a gay interior designer spent 1,660 pounds and temporary renovations of the royal box and of the auditorium."
0: So far sounds, um, so far so good, so English, right?
1: Very much, and that's where the story goes. And in fact, two weeks before the coronation, Britain attended a small dinner at Orham Square for and with the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, and throughout the 1950s and 1960s, dinners and letters and royal commissions abounded. Yet Britain never shook his communist and pacifist sympathies even as he rose to the highest levels of elite British cultural production. So Britain was born in a small fishing village in Suffolk called Lowestoft on the 22nd of November, 1913, which is also the feast day of St. Cecilia.
0: Can I, can I interrupt and be the uh, the the pronunciation guy here? It's called Lowestoft.
1: Lowestoft. Very good. Lowestoft, there we go. He was born in Lowestoft, Uh, To quote his beloved poet, uh, George Crabbe, on the fishing life in these uh, villages in Suffolk, quote, Hark to those sounds, they're from distress at sea. How quick they come, what terrors may there be. Yet tis a driven vessel, I discern lights, signs of terror gleaming from the stern. Others behold them too, and from the town in various parties seamen hurry down. Their wives pursue, and damsels urged by dread, lest men so dear be into danger led. Their head the gown has hooded, and their call in this sad night is piercing like the squall. They feel their kinds of power, and when they meet, chide, fondle, weep, dare, threaten, or entreat. And Britain, uh, like E.M. Forster, admired the way that Crabb refused to idealize his surroundings and the people who lived in them. Forster suggested in, in 1941 about Crabb, quote, when he started writing, it was the fashion to pretend that everyone was happy shepherds and shepherdesses who were always dancing or anyhow had hearts of gold. But Crabbe knew the local almshouses and hospital and prison and the sorts of people who drift into them. He read in the Paris registers the deaths of the unsuccessful, the marriages of the incompetent, and the births of the illegitimate. And these are the exact kind of figures for whom Britain will always continue to have sympathy Uh, and empathy throughout his life and and, uh, of whom he will feel a part, even when he reaches the sort of highest levels of the British elite. When Britain was only three months old, he contracted a case of pneumonia that nearly killed him. The disease left him with a damaged heart and doctors warned his parents that he might never be able to lead a normal life. He did eventually make a full recovery and became, uh, unlike many of our other subjects, actually a very uh, apt and athletic boy. Um, But He did remain very sickly throughout his life. And this was a fact that he would always paranoidly attribute back to this bout of pneumonia, but his biographer, um, the most recent biographer attributes this to ongoing syphilis, uh, progressing eventually to tertiary syphilis. And this is disputed by Britain scholars and fans still. His father, Robert was a dentist and his mother, Edith was the daughter of a civil servant in the home office. His father was reportedly a loving, but stern and remote parent. His mother was an amateur musician. uh, And in the sort of stultifying middle-class life of uh, the Suffolk coast at this time, uh, there were two things that made this marriage, uh, despite the middle-class status of the parents, a little bit odd. One was that his father, in a socially uh, socially shocking act, refused to attend church, uh, and that his mother had been born out of wedlock. Uh, but nevertheless, his mother attempted to use her musical skill to raise the family's class status by hosting musical events at their home. Scandalous. Scandalous. The standards were lower back then, really. You know, you sold Mrs. Finch a bad fish and you were done for life. There have been some reports that his father was either a homosexual or a pedophile, uh, but those are disputed and dismissed by Britain's more reputable biographers. His father was known as attractively ugly and was often described as looking a, like an evil character in a silent film. One fun detail is that he would allow himself only one hot bath a week, which is a habit that Britain apparently picked up
0: from him. I hate to say that, but um, up until relatively recently, that was also um, uh, British culture in general. <laughs> bath night.
1: Yes. Um, he was disturbed by his son's musical, musical predilections and worried that his son would never be able to make his own living. His mother was kinder and more gentle and encouraged his talent and arranged music lessons with some big names, including the then very well-known composer, now mostly forgotten, Frank Bridge. Britain's early musical life was dominated by Bridge and by the classical masters his mother had the very easy to achieve ambition for him to become the fourth B after Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. And the funny thing is he almost made it. Uh, you might say, the children were constantly involved in little theatrical productions and musical events. Um, when the first world war hit, Robert was saved from conscription because as a dentist, he didn't have to go and serve because he was medical personnel. Uh, the German Navy did, uh, once, uh, approach the town, but the family's contended middle-class lifestyle seemed to continue throughout the Great War. Bridge as a teacher uh, impressed upon Britain uh, the importance of paying attention to the technical craft of composing, uh, and the early works that Britain composed while studying uh, with Bridge really do show uh, that influence on him. Um, Some people dispute the extent to which Bridge influenced Britain, but others contend that Bridge had a very important influence on uh, Britain's work. And so after five years at a local preparatory school, he then moved to uh, Gresham's Public School, another one of these anything-but-public private boarding schools, but then at the age of 16 was whisked away to the Royal College of Music in London. And at the time, he was very happy. When, when he went as a boarder to Gresham School, he felt very unhappy. He wrote in his diary about contemplating suicide or running away. He missed his family, and particularly his mother, and he was sort of shocked by the way in which people were bullied, although he managed to get away from being bullied. Um, but later in his life, he would often look back with a great deal of regret on having been whisked away from school so early. John Bridgut, the author of the book Britain's Children, which is a remarkable, even-handed, and very unsensational account of Britain's relationships with adolescent boys, Britain would long for his missed scholastic years, for the rhythm of school, and for the company of schoolboys. One of Britain's later librettists, Eric Crozier, observed these kinds of relationships at first hand, and he wrote, and I quote, It was almost a return to his own youth, but a kind of idealized image of himself at the age of 10 or 12, the gay, attractive, charming, young, Lowestoft offed boy, unerringly skillful in his use of a cricket bat or a tennis racket, and being able to do things with a ball that no other child of his age could do. It was like a flirtation that he carried on with any child that he met, particularly, of course, young boys, trying to dazzle them and astonish them by his virtuosity and charm, making them his undying friends. So from 1930 to 1933, Britain was at the Royal College of Music. He studied a composition with the British composer, uh, an English composer with the confusing last name of Ireland, uh, and he also studied with Arthur Benjamin. Uh, you may not have heard of any of these composers, even if you're very into classical music, and this is one of the reasons why uh, Britain became such a big deal, is that there really were very few, almost no prominent English composers um, between... I mean, Handel was German, but the English claim he was Handel because he lived there for a time. Uh, but really, since the death of Henry Purcell in 1695, um, I'm not going to grant von Williams the status of major composer. I share Igor Stravinsky's uh, attitude about his music, which is that listening to it is like looking at a cow.
0: I, I am—I know next to nothing about classical music, so I'm really—I'm really, I'm really um, yeah, the sounding board here. But w- what about? Uh, 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 don't judge me, please, Ben. But what about Edward Elgar? Elgar is the I'm sorry,
1: I, I forgot Elgar, and you're right. Uh, and again, uh, the Elgar people are now going to are now going to come down on me hard. Phew. Elgar is also uh, is also a kind of major a major musical figure, although I think probably not uh, not even so major as um, as Briton, at least not in my personal book. Uh, but Elgar is another is another major figure from from just before Britain's time. Elgar's last major uh, work um, is the Cello Concerto, which I all think is his best, uh, and that's written in the aftermath of the First World War. Uh, so Elgar is kind of late 19th century um, and early 20th, uh, and then Britain... Yeah,
0: I mean, that's, that's how I imagine him as like very much an Edwardian composer. Yes, an Edwardian composer who,
1: the 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 cello concerto is kind of a, a weepy. I mean, a very beautiful piece, but it's full of deep nostalgia for the world that has been lost, essentially, um, in the Great War.
0: I think I think I'm probably the um, the target audience for Liberace. <laughs> Hardly. You yeah. know, I, I recognize I recognize bits, but I want the boring bits left out. But also, um. Well, Vaughn Williams, von Williams did a Vaughn Williams did the Lark Ascending, right? Yes, I like that. Oh, there's plenty
1: of pretty Vaughn Williams. I'm, you <laughs> know, it, it, there's there's all of it is beautiful. Um, I mean, if you want to hear like really bad early 20th century English music, go listen to some Delius. It's like uh, um, chromatic nothing becoming more chromatic nothing, and there's just big gobs of
0: double sharps and double flats laying eggs all over the place. Will you continue and I'll be the the basic bitch in the background asking these questions.
1: Hardly Hugh, hardly. Um, So Britton used his time uh, in London to attend concerts and he became particularly interested in music being written by Stravinsky and Shostakovich um, and Mahler. Um, He wanted to uh, go to Vienna at this point to pursue postgraduate study with Alban Berg uh, but was then dissuaded by the staff at the Royal College of Music, who also uh, got his parents to agree to try to prevent him from going. And what's interesting about Stravinsky, Shostakovich, and Berg is that they share something that will also become true of Britain's adult style, and that I think is one of the reasons why he is such a beloved composer, uh, not only with critics, but also with listeners, uh, which is that these are all composers who are um, would very much be considered modern, uh, and yet, none of them are in the technical avant garde. Berg is to some extent, but the sort of technical avant garde of Arnold Schoenberg, Berg to some extent, and Webern, uh, where a complete step away from tonality is made uh, and music is written according to these other uh, mathematical schemas which become increasingly more complicated. Uh, and none of that. How any of that works doesn't matter to any of this, and I don't fully understand it myself. But the important thing to note is that the, the composers by whom he's influenced and that he's trying to study with are trying to unify um, an aesthetic modernism with a deep well of uh, accessible emotional um, depth, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, I think that there's plenty of emotional depth in Schoenberg, too, but, but Berg and uh, and Stravinsky and Shostakovich, um, that's often easier for people to hear uh, who who aren't uh into uh, that particular kind of second Viennese school or or hyper avant-garde
0: musical style. So for the for the basic bitches in the room, the mod there was this like modern modern modernist move within classical music <clears throat> or within the sort of music where which was a move away from tonality towards atonality. And then there's a second wave behind that which was taking that influence but making it listenable sort of they're happening kind
1: of at the same time basically a lot of people agree that after uh, the music of of Richard Strauss um, and Richard Wagner um, you can't go that much further in tonality right there's a sort of progressive idea which you don't have to share but at this point this is how a lot of people are thinking there's kind of a progressive idea of music and they're kind of moving through functional harmony and you reach a point at which you can't do anything weirder to functional harmony. You've kind of reached its limits. And so then people start trying to break through it in different ways. Um, and in fact, the more free modern atonal or, uh, stuff or, or kind of departures from functional harmony come before. And then Schoenberg is the one who decides that there should be, there should be a, an intellectual system that is as rigorous as traditional functional harmony. And so he develops... Uh, what becomes known as the 12-tone or serialist uh, system of composing. Um, and then that becomes a, a kind of Bible for a particular sort of stream of hyper-modernist composers going through uh, his pupil, Webern, his pupil, Berg, who then also departs from it um, a bunch and kind of, you know, the, a Berg piece will be half 12-tone and half in B minor. Um, and then through composers like Karlheinz Stockhausen, um, Milton Babbitt, uh, Boulez,
0: um, on and on. Okay. And so and, so, but, but, but so, but so import- Britain was on the edge of, edge of this, influenced by it, but not, and, and he was the most interesting of the English composers, but even he didn't really step into that world.
1: He did not step into that world. And well, he did, he, he became influenced by it later in life, but especially beginning, in the beginning of his life and throughout his life, um, people like Stravinsky and Shostakovich who are writing modern music but modern music that is not in this kind of hyper-intellectualized avant-garde, um, yeah. that's the place that he is. And this is also just to, just to like, there has never been a, a broad, there's always been a very narrow, deep, and passionate fan base for serialist and um, sort of intellectualized avant-garde music, um, but the concert-going public has never particularly liked it. Um, okay it's a narrow but deep fan base and and so britain's music i think appealed precisely because in the way that stravinsky's music appealed and tchaikovsky's music appealed precisely because um it is uh it is i think more accessible in some way got it um thank you And so this is a time when Britain starts to, uh, as people do, uh, publish his first uh, pieces like the Sinfonietta and the Oboe Quartet Fantasy, spelled with a PH, um, which are his Opus 1 and 2. And uh, this is a time when his music has a reputation uh, for being very showy and sort of too clever for itself by half. There's all these little bits of construction-like canons that will sort of weave around itself and come together. Um, He was thought to be, in the words of his biographer, flashy, ingenious, and brilliant in a pejorative sense, leaving his music shallow, purposeless, and cold. the trouble, the biographer says, in rebutting this was that his work was undeniably clever, and the gamesmanship was part of the cleverness. But this was not superficial. It came directly from his musical soul. He knew better than anyone how music fitted together and had great fun taking it apart and reassembling it. So as a young working composer, uh, Britton was invited to uh, work at the BBC um, to write the score for a documentary film called The King's Stamp. Um, and as a member of the BBC Film Unit's group of regular contributors, he met, befriended, and became a collaborator, a collaborator of the poet W.H. Auden. And together they worked on two documentary films called Coalface and Nightmare,
0: Collaborating, I love *Nightmail*. Yeah, so Britain wrote The Score to Nightmare. Oh, wow. that's Yeah, that's such a great little film. And
1: they collaborated on the song cycle Our Hunting Fathers um, and also other works. And uh, Auden was a big influence on Britain. Uh, he encouraged him to widen his aesthetic, intellectual, and political horizons. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I think we should talk about the fact that Auden uh, was at this time, uh, as David Matthews once put it, cheerfully and guiltlessly promiscuous, uh, and Britain at this time was quite sexually repressed, uh, but even at this time, Auden would tease Britain about his quote attraction to thinness aboard juveniles.
0: And at this was, time, I guess, I guess Auden was. This is around the time that Auden and Isherwood were um, on and on and off again, uh, lovers slash friends. Yes, I mean, on always on friends, but on and off lovers. I think.
1: Yes, and uh, Isherwood's actually going to come in here in a moment. So it was around this time that Britain met uh, a boy named Harry Morris, who is the only person who, in uh, that book, Britain's Children, which is a deeply researched look into Britain's relationships with boys, the only person who seems to have ever named the relationship he had with Britain as um, at least abortively sexual or abusive. Harry first appeared in Britain's diary in May of 1936 as, quote, a boy of 13 who is interested in music. It is early to predict a genius, but he is very enthusiastic. This was, around oh, the time, this was around the time that Britain's mother died, and this is also when Auden and his friend Christopher Isherwood were encouraging Britain to move out from under the umbrella of his family and resolve some of his sexual dilemmas. Oh, Isherwood, Isherwood uh, well, that's not how they were getting him to try to do it. Isherwood yeah. uh, made his attempt by getting Britain drunk and then taking him to a Turkish bath, Um, And while six months earlier, Britain had fled shrieking from a brothel of Parisian prostitutes, at the baths, he reported merely feeling, quote, very pleasant sensations amid the, quote, perpetual restlessness. Interesting. But back to Morris. Britain ended up inviting Morris to stay with him in London uh, and then invited Morris to come with him on a vacation to Cornwall with his family. And two days into the vacation, Morris suddenly left. Morris would later remember that he had been uh, alarmed by what he understood as a sexual advance from Britain in his bedroom. He claimed that he then screamed and threw a chair at Britain, which brought Beth, who was Britain's sister, rushing into the room. That Beth then uh, shouted down her brother and took him out, took uh, her brother out of the room and locked the door to protect Harry before driving him to the station the next morning. And there's no reference to anything like this, Bridcut points out in Britain's diary. Uh, instead, Morris just Disappears from the holiday. Uh, Bridcut has a very odd take on this. He says that, uh, quote, this is not itself proof of anything untoward and more about a sense of threat than about an actual incident. And I would argue that this is, in fact, an actual incident, even if it's the only one for which there's an abuser, an accuser, sorry, and corroboration.
0: Yeah.
1: But I think I mean, it, it, seems,
0: it seems pretty clear, now.
1: It seems pretty clear to me, but it is important, I think, to note that none of the other of Britain's children, or more accurately, Britain's boys, ever alleged that the composer made a sexual advance on them. Um, So there are no additional accusers, and no one has accused or intimated anything more than that happening in terms of sex or in terms of abuse. But as we will see, uh, these relationships continue to exist
0: and continue to be troubling but also of course um this is a time even even more so than now than now that it was very difficult for young people to make accusations uh or again uh, of sexual abuse against um or to to come forward with accusations of sexual abuse against people in power or authority I and mean, there's not the there's not the social language it's very difficult like sex in general is very repressed um people people weren't uh didn't have access to sex education at a young age, you know, it's like so so obviously while well, there's no accusations, I mean this in itself seems that there's um uh, there's a there's a there's a problem in his behaviour towards um towards young people.
1: Oh certainly um I mean the, towards the- children. The the way that I'll complicate what you just said further, not refute it, but complicate it, is to say that uh, Britain dies in the 1970s, um, and this pattern of friendships with young boys continues until his death. And so there are people who, many people who are still alive, um, who were interviewed for Breedkut's book uh, and who spoke very openly about uh, what happened and, and their experiences with Britain, both good and bad. Um, and so I, I think it is, it is, it is more meaningful that there are no additional accusers than if this had not been deeply researched and had occurred in the 1930s and there was just this one accusation, but then the person died in 1950 and there were no other accusers, but no one sort of looked into it. Um, so it's it, it's neither not troubling nor is it necessarily solid evidence that anything happened, uh, but it's certainly an important Thing to consider about Britain, and it's one of the reasons why we're featuring yeah. on this show. So it was also around the same time uh, that Britain met um, the tenor Peter Piers. And Piers was born in Surrey and was the youngest of the seven children of Arthur Grant Piers and his wife, get ready for this name, Jesse Elizabeth DeVisme Leward Piers. DeVisme? DeVisme. De, De
0: D-E space V-I-S-M-E Divism? Ben, I have to admit, um, I did, I've been doing some research into my own family history recently it's my own genealogy uh, and you... I did find in the a, in a 19th century I had um, two, two uh, relatives I guess, going right back um, whose middle names, this is a, a brother and sister whose middle names were Pyramus and Thisbe <laughs> <laughs> I knew you came from Rude Mechanicals,
1: Hugh. Well, yeah. What? The, what the fuck is wrong with English people? I don't know. Anyway, uh, Jesse Elizabeth Devisme Luard Piers at Arthur Grant Piers. Um, it's an interesting match because the uh, Devisme Luard side was a naval and military family, but the Piers side was a Quaker uh, family, and so Piers was a kind of lifelong pacifist by birth. Piers and Britton became close in the summer of 1937 while they were helping to clear out the country cottage of a friend who had died in an air crash, and they immediately became very close friends, and Piers became Britton's musical inspiration. Um, the relationship was, for the first three years, platonic, and uh, Britton wrote his first work for Piers within weeks of their meeting, which was a setting for tenor and strings of Emily Bronte's poem, A Thousand Gleaming Fires. Until this point Piers had not pursued his career or vocal training uh, particularly seriously and he became much more focused uh, because of Britain's influence uh, after their death John Amos wrote rather cruelly that Britain would have become a great composer without Piers but that Piers would not have become a great singer without Britain uh, Piers didn't have his first professional experience in opera for example until a year after meeting Britain in 1938 when he became an understudy and member of the chorus at the Glyndebourne Festival Now, Britain at this time was also becoming more active in politics, both uh, in terms of his relationship with Auden and in terms of his relationship with peers. In terms of his relationship with peers, where pacifism seemed to be the main uh, unifying force, uh, he became active in an association known as the Peace Pledge Union, uh, which had as its public sponsors Aldous Huxley, Bertrand Russell, Rose Macaulay, Donald Soper, Siegfried Sassoon, Reginald Soroson, Ursula Roberts, and Brigadier General F.P. Crozier.
0: My grandfather was also a member.
1: Was he a Quaker? Uh, Yes, he was, yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of Quakers. The PPU had uh, many members from across the political spectrum, including Quakers, socialists, anarchists, and, in the words of its member Derek Savage, quote, an amorphous mass of ordinary well-meaning and fluffy peace lovers. It also emerged in 1937 with the No More War movement, um, and um, the PPU controversially supported uh, acts of appeasement, some members did suggest that Nazi Germany would cease its aggressions uh, if uh, some policies of appeasement were followed, um, and this then became very controversial later. Uh, this is also a time when Britain is beginning to read communist journals um, and potentially identify as a communist, potentially sympathize with communism. Certainly some of those films that he's making with Auden in the film unit uh, are very political. The best known of his compositions from that period is a piece called Variations on a Theme of Frank Bridge for String Orchestra, which is one of Britain's earliest works that's still often performed, uh, and it also became importantly a huge success in North America. There were performances in Toronto, and New York, and Boston, and San Francisco, um, and this is how uh, Britain was discovered by the Russian emigre conductor Serge Kusevitsky. Uh, Kusevitsky was the music director of the Boston Symphony for 29 years. Um, until about 1950, and Kusavitsky uh, would become an important commissioner and performer of Britain's works throughout the 1940s. In April 1939, Britain and Piers sailed for North America. They first went to Canada and then to New York, and they had a few reasons for leaving England. Uh, they were pacifists in a Europe that was increasingly looking like it was about to go to war. Uh, Britain's teacher, Frank Bridget, had a lot of success in the United States, Auden and Isherwood had gone to the United States three months before then, um, and Britain was also having a hard time getting good reviews in England, while meanwhile in the U.S., uh, his music was being performed rather often. Upon arriving in the United States, the two finally consummated their relationship, and uh, Britain wrote, Tears, a very beautiful song cycle, the sonnets on Michelangelo to commemorate and celebrate. Uh, but as John Ewells, who was one of Britain's boys, said much later in his life, quote, When we, the boys, were around, Peter Pierce definitely took second place. We were very much at the forefront. Ben was the boy, the lad. Peter wasn't. He was an adult and never joined us in Ben's fast cars, ripping around the Suffolk countryside. Yule said he could visualize Ben with the, quote, huge crinkly grins he had on his face as they zoomed along. These occasions gave Ben the chance to indulge in that time of his life that he missed or remembered with joy. He was happy. I don't really think that we could do wrong. In this early period, um, Britton also also writes about Britain's friendship with a boy named Humphrey Maud, which started when the boy was nine and they became close friends a few years later when Humphrey was at Eton. Humphrey's father, a man named Sir John Maud, who was permanent secretary at the Ministry of Education, intervened to ask Britain to stop inviting Humphrey to spend school holidays with him. Uh, Jonathan Garthorn Hardy was another young friend of Britain who was 14 years old, and uh, David Spencer was another one of Britain's boys, 13 years old, who once shared a double bed with Britain at his home. Um, Bridcut interviewed all of the living uh, men who had talked to him who had been friends with Britain when they were adolescent boys. One of them was uh, the actor David Hemmings, who was 12 when he came into Britain's life, and he was the creator of the role of Miles in Britain's opera The Turn of the Screw. The conductor, Charles Macarras, who uh, later became Sir Charles Macarras, um, I'm never sure if it's Macarras or Macarras, a very fine conductor, uh, later said of the relationship, quote, David Hemmings was an ob- extremely good-looking young chap, and he obviously played up to Ben's attraction to him and drank it in. Obviously, it was a sexual attraction, but I'm sure that it was never actually fulfilled. Hemmings himself told Bridcut, quote, he was not only a father to me, but a friend, and you couldn't have had a better father or better friend. Everybody asked me whether or not he gave me one, whether or not it was a sexual relationship. The answer to that question, as I have often said, is no. No, he did not. I have slept in his bed, yes, only because I was scared at night, and I never, ever felt threatened by Ben at all because I was more heterosexual than Genghis Khan, End quote. Yeah, I don't know about that. <clears throat> but despite all of that... Sorry, continue.
0: No, I mean, I mean... Uh, yeah it's a very complicated issue in terms of like his feelings and recollections about it but in terms of uh britain's behavior is is completely unacceptable to me it is and uh, and and why why um and why did more people not intervene if if for example this guy is saying that he was aware of this guy's sexual attraction to um to children uh I think and and uh, yeah, to suggest that this kid is like playing up to this guy's attraction seems like a very bizarre way of looking at it. I think there's a few reasons
1: um, why people didn't intervene. Um, I think one of them is that um, in at the time of the writing of the Turn of the Screw in 1954, and as we'll as we'll hear, um, the climate is particularly homophobic in this moment uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, If you're Sir Charles Macaris, right, if you're at least a sort of friendly heterosexual um, who knows that Britain and peers are in this relationship uh, and who maybe kind of thinks that homosexuality and pederasty are the same thing anyway, Hmm. um, then you might think, well, if... I saw anything bad happening to the kid, I would say something, but I'm not going to call the police down on the greatest composer of our, of our country. I'm not going to have him thrown up, thrown in jail. I'm not going to have, you know what I mean? Um, And that may have been the, the impulse, um, the impulse there. But despite uh, all of these, Relationships with, with boys, Britain and Piers would remain both professional and life partners until Britain's death. And upon Britain's death, Piers would receive an officially delivered letter of condolence from Queen Elizabeth II, which was an astonishing act and actually, by some accounts, the first legal recognition of a homosexual couple in modern Britain. But that's all to come later. For now, Britain and Piers are just getting off the boat in the United States and uh, settling into a remarkable home at 7 Midday Street in Brooklyn, known as February House. Uh, the house was in the Georgian style, so, or at least American Georgian style. So think um, somber brick and stone floors, but then at the top, a giant exploding Victorian wooden portico. The other residents of the house included Gerger Loins, George Davis, Carson McCullers, Auden, and the burlesque star Gypsy Rose Lee. Eventually, Paul and Jane Bowles would move in too, and guests included all three queer man children, Erica Klaus and Golo, Isherwood, Jerome Robbins, Salvador Dali, Virgil Thompson, Leonard Bernstein, and Lincoln Kirstein.
0: Sounds amazing, but also kind of bloody awful. Can you imagine them all at dinner? Like what? <laughs> Oh, a bunch of show-offs. We're not going to have to imagine. We're going to hear about it.
1: Uh, together, this bunch of uh, queer bohemian show-offs decorated the house in a campy, kitschy style. A uh, guest, the writer Anais Nin, described the house as being covered in, quote, Edwardian pieces, Victorian porcelain hands, old-fashioned stationery, and strewn with flowers, and lacy valentines, a museum of Americana. It was Gypsy Rose Lee who imposed the order on the home. She was a major celebrity and brought with her when she moved in money to finish up the repairs on the roof and also a live-in maid. Britton and Pierce were low on money, uh, but seemed to have liked the idea of bohemian living better than the smelly, noisy reality. Living is quite pleasant here when it is not too exciting, Britton wrote to a friend shortly after moving in, but I find it almost impossible to to work. This is somebody who was a very prolific composer with music pouring from his fingers when he sat down. Peters would later describe the house as too wild, too uncertain, it didn't suit us. Other residents uh, described the pair as reticent and uncommunicative. They lived in the February house only for a few months and seemed to have been uh, in the assessment of Hugh Ryan in his book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, touched and been touched by the experience the least. I do want to tell one story about a particularly memorable dinner uh, at this home. Uh, This was the first Thanksgiving dinner they all hosted uh, at February House. Um, Dinner, according to uh, Carson McCullers' autobiography, and I'm now quoting from Hugh Ryan's book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, started off on a bad note. Unaccustomed to being a host and never at home in the kitchen, she bought only a tiny turkey to feed all of the guests. Luckily, Davis stepped in and saved the day, wrestling up a proper sized bird from who knows where. After dinner, they retired to the parlor for brandy, music, stories, and cigarettes. Davis, in particular, had a reputation as a raconteur. It's easy to imagine Davis, fey, slight, and animated, leaning against the grand piano that friend fashion icon Diana Freeland had donated to February House, giving one of his campy monologues about the joys of Brooklyn cruising. My dear, when I spotted this gorgeous hunk of seafood in a Sand Street bar, I said to myself, Miss Davis, you have met your piece of trade for life. That Thanksgiving, however, any stories being told were soon interrupted by the klaxon of the nearby firehouse, a suggestion of adventure that neither McCullers nor Gypsy Rose Lee could resist. Arm in arm, they raced out into the Brooklyn night, and while they looked for the fire, McCullers had a breakthrough in the plot of her next book, The Member of the Wedding. So it's this kind of eccentric house full of noise and storytelling and cigarette smoke, but uh, as we'll hear more about later, Britton and Peer's were, despite being uh, despite Britain being a modernist artist and despite being gay, they were not particularly outre or bohemian. Britain preferred country life to city life for his whole life. He dressed in tweed suits. Um, he was not uh, a rebel in his personal tastes. When the Second World War began, Britain and Piers turned for advice to the British Embassy in Washington, and they were told that they should remain in the United States and be kind of artistic ambassadors of, of uh, Britain. Britain uh, befriended the composer Aaron Copeland, who was also a gay communist, um, and encountered uh, works of his like Billy the Kid, which influenced Britain's own music. Britain also at this time wrote a violin concerto and his first music drama, an operetta called Paul Bunyan to a libretto by Auden. In 1942, Britain first read the work of the poet George Crabb. Um, uh, a cycle of poetry called the Borough*, which was set on the Suffolk coast close to Britain's homeland, uh, awakened in Britain uh, two longings, one to return to his home, and the second to write an opera based on Crabb's poem about the fisherman, Peter Grimes. Before Britain left the United States, uh, the conductor Kusevitsky, who I mentioned earlier, uh, offered him a thousand dollar commission to write the opera. And so in April of 1942, Britain and Pears returned to England. At this time, Britain also began to grow away from Auden, and Auden became uh, one of the composer's so-called corpses, former intimates from whom he uh, completely cut off contact once they had offended him or outlived their usefulness. And this is also uh, the way that he would treat boys, typically, once they reach late puberty. Uh, And this is often what's mentioned by these boys as the most traumatic part of their relationship, even if nothing sexual happened, that they would have these moments of enormous intimacy uh, and mentorship with this great man, and then at a certain point, he would just basically cut them off and never want to speak to them again. So, George Crabbe's poem, Peter Grimes from the Borough. Uh, Crabbe was an English poet and a clergyman, and he was best used for his use of the realistic narrative form and for his unidealized descriptions of working class people. Here's a quote from his narrative poem, Peter Grimes. Quote, Then came a boy of manners soft and mild. Our seamen's wives with grief beheld the child. All thought the poor themselves that he was one of gentle blood. Some noble sinner's son who had, belike, deceived some humble maid, whom he had first seduced and then betrayed. However this he seemed a gracious lad, in grief submissive and with patience sad. Passive he labored, till his slender frame bent with his loads, and he at length was lame. Strange that a frame so weak could bear so long the grossest insult and the foulest wrong. But there were causes in the town they gave fire, food, and comfort to the gentle slave. And though stern Peter, with a cruel hand and knotted rope, enforced the rude command, yet he considered what he'd lately felt, and his vile blows with selfish pity dealt. The pitying women raised a clamor round, and weeping said, Thou hast thy prentice drowned. The poem concerns a vicious taxmaster fisherman named Peter Grimes who, aiming to make more money to survive in the viciously closed-minded fishing society of the Suffolk coast, works several boy apprentices picked up from workhouses to death before himself being essentially hunted to death by his townspeople. Working with the poet Montague Slater, Britton changed the story somewhat, crafting a narrative that, as he said, was, quote, about a subject very close to my heart, the struggle of the individual against the masses. The more vicious the society, the more vicious the individual, end quote. Written peers as pacifists during the war and as homosexuals certainly felt themselves to have this relationship to society. And then there was the relationship between Peter and the boy apprentices. The libretto queers this relationship, making Grimes a more sensitive and sympathetic figure, one capable of speaking in poetry even rarer in opera librettos than it is among fishermen. What harbor shelters peace, he asks, what harbor can embrace terrors and tragedies. Here is Britain and Slater's Grimes bursting into a tavern after a storm. Now the great bear and Pleiades where earth moves are drying up the clouds of human grief, breathing solemnity in the deep night. Who can decipher in storm or starlight the written character of a friendly fate as the sky turns the world for us to change? But if the horoscopes bewildering, like the flashing turmoil of a shoal of herring, who Can Turn Skies Back and Begin Again? When Joan Cross, then the manager of the Sadler's Wells Company, which has now become the English National Opera, announced her intention to reopen the theater uh, after the VE Day with Peter Grimes, starring herself and Peter Pears in the leading roles, there were complaints from members of the company and from the press about favoritism and about Britain's score. Yet when Grimes opened in June of 1945, the opera was praised by the public and by critics. Uh, at the box office, it exceeded the money made by La Boheme and Badama Butterfly, which are sort of big repertory pieces that were being staged concurrently by the company. The American premiere was given in 1946 at Tanglewood by Kusevitsky's pupil, conducted by Kusevitsky's pupil, Leonard Bernstein. Um, and in 1947, it had its first performance at the Royal Opera House. And this piece really establishes and reestablishes Britain's career. It's incredibly rare for there to be a 20th century opera that is equally beloved by critics and by audiences. Um, the conductor James Conlon uh, wrote of the opera, quote, uh, further remarked that Grimes is not a hero or a villain. He is not a sadist or a demonic character. He is a weak person who being at odds with the society in which he finds himself tries to overcome it. And in doing so, offends against the conventional code, is classed by society as a criminal and destroyed as such. There are plenty of Grimeses around still, I think. Says Conlon, all these statements together add up to an indictment of society. Peter Grimes is a powerful tale of the plight of the outsider. The status of any homosexual male at the time was to be a man who finds himself at odds with the society in which he finds himself. I think it's also important to note that like Britain, Grimes is a sympathetic figure in his stance against society, uh, but also deeply culpable in the deaths uh, of two of his boy apprentices. Um, and so that that complexity is, I think, part of what makes Grimes uh, a work that whatever Britain's own moral failings or personal failings actually engages with the best of what was uh, both the best and the worst of the man who wrote it. Um, and as such is, I think, one of the enduring musical and dramatic masterpieces of all time. And the success of Grimes turns Britain into a court composer for the English upper classes. And uh, the style of the piece is also important to talk about a little bit. It's deceptively simple music, and there's a lot of evocations of sea and of sky and of endless gray landscapes. Uh, If Aaron Copland, a gay communist in the United States with big open fourths and open fifths could evoke rocky mountains and wide blue skies, Britain's music could evoke the fog dancing above the sea and the birds uh, and the gray skies of uh, the fishing villages in winter of Aldborough. A musicologist named Nadine Hubbs wrote a book called The Queer Composition of America's Sound, Gay Modernists, American Music, and National Identity. And she focuses on composers like Aaron Copland, Leonard Bernstein, Samuel Barber, uh, people whose uh, identification with tonal music and homosexuality created a popular classical music idiom that still signifies the American nation. And it was kind of a competitor to... Um, the maybe more straight avant garde coded uh, music of uh, Boulez, although uh, people, composers like uh, Stockhausen and Boulez, although Boulez, um, you know, there are rumors about him too. Um, I sent you earlier today, Hugh, uh, a snippet of music from Peter Grimes, the first of the C interludes, uh, which is the closest the piece comes to an overture. It happens right after the prologue. And uh, what did you think? I mean, it's four minutes of music, but. <coughs> I liked it, but you see what I mean about the sense of the sort of sense of space and the sense. Yeah, of... Yeah, definitely. A good, of the yeah,
0: yeah. Like, like, like you saying that now, that like that that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I don't, I don't have the language to like uh, talk about or like understand classical music. Like, I don't know what I'm listening for in, in this, in a, in in that way. I have no education in it, but but there, there, there seemed to be in my mind some natural link between. Between the music and yeah, like the like the sounds of or the 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 sensation of of that of the coast and specifically of um you know around Suffolk as well. Like uh, it, it made sense to me that that's when you said that's where he's from. You know, yeah, it's very beautiful.
1: It is. It's a really. It's an astonishing piece of music. And and I, there was for a time. There's a um, Britain's music was very well documented. Um, by the post-war labor, uh, national culture organizations. Um, there are filmed versions of many of his operas. There's a lot of clips on YouTube and I and encourage people to go uh, listen and watch. Britain was also, um, and you, you may have heard also in the, in the quote uh, from the libretto there, uh, opera librettos are, are not typically known uh, for being great works of literature. Uh, Oftentimes to some of the most sublime music you can imagine, it's people in a line saying, I am very confused, or, oh no, you killed her, or there are so many feelings that I have in my heart. Um, But Britton uh, was uh, a really great, uh, not just a great composer, but also a great composer for the voice and also a great setter of text to music. Uh, He's one of the only canonical composers to set English texts convincingly, Uh, and is actually was cited in an interview that I did with the writer Garth Greenwell as a very important uh, influence on how Greenwell thinks about language itself. Um, That interview is also out there. We can link to it in the show notes. Uh, Britain's prosody, Greenwell said, is better than anyone's in English, and the music is an interpretation. I think Britain's settings of John Donne are the best interpretations of John Donne I know, and his reading of Death in Venice is the best reading of Death in Venice I know. The music is not in any way servile to the text, but stands alongside and is revelatory of it. Approaching text, many operatic composers sought a weaker text. They were drawn to an absence or lack in the text that the music could fill. Until Britain, more or less, among major composers, only Verdi had chosen monumental works to set, and almost uniquely in the history of opera, wrote music that was equal to and in full partnership with the textual material. I don't know anything else in opera that is like that until Britain. There are the great partnerships, but that's different from a composer turning to a classic independent text with its own indisputable greatness and trying to compose something that will be the equal of that and that will stand alongside it, different and independent and autonomous. So in 1953, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, Britain was commissioned to do Gloriana for Queen Elizabeth's coronation. The opera depicts the relationship between Queen Elizabeth and the Earl of Spencer, but the audience was disappointed by the opera, which, uh, despite being commissioned by the royal family, presented Elizabeth I as a flawed character motivated largely by vanity and desire. So unlike our own dear Queen. Of course. Uh, around the same time, Britain launched his own summer festival, uh, inspired by Tangle, Tanglewood to some extent, the Alderbury Festival uh, in Alderbury, in Suffolk. Um, directed by Britain and peers. Um, the festival was a success and continues until this day. It was canceled this summer, but um, people can still go uh, to it. And uh, Britain would premiere many of his major new works um, at the festival, uh, at the concert hall, at the festival, which bears the name of Snape Malting's and uh, Britain continued to write spectacular operas on very gay themes, uh, including Billy Budd in 1951 uh, and in 1954, The Turn of the Screw. Um, the Turn of the Screw featured a major role for peers, as did Billy Budd, as did most of his works. Uh, their relationship was somewhat of an open secret, even in the extremely homophobic world of 1950s Britain. Critics would make unkind comments about Piers, saying that his success was due to his partnership with Britain and some suggesting that uh, the most famous arias in Britain's operas were written on one or two notes because those were the only two good notes in Piers' voice. Um, Piers did have have a very distinctive high tenor. Um, If you want to hear what his voice sounded like, uh, listeners can go on Spotify and listen to that aria that I read from earlier, Now the Great Bear and Pleiades and you'll hear the, the, the tone of the voice. It's one that Britain wrote for very well, and it's difficult to replicate because it combines uh, a very high tessitura so the the voice itself is set very high. The loudest and most powerful notes are higher than many tenors. Uh, the tone of the voice itself is pure, almost white, almost like an oboe. It's sort of reedy, maybe familiar to people who know English choral singing, uh, but it was also a powerful enough voice that it could cut through large orchestras. Um, and so typically uh, casting these roles now is difficult because you can either find a kind of high white tenor who can sing these very pure notes, or you can find someone who's loud enough to go through an orchestra, but it's relatively difficult to find both of those things in one in one singer. Um, the Turn of the Screw, uh, with that part written for one of Britain's boys, David Hemmings, also has pederastic themes which are uh, played up in the novel uh, played up rather in the opera even more than they are played up in the novel. Um, I mean the opera is again in the way that it engages with the deep moral complexity of that theme, a work that overcomes britain 's own moral failings, although I think it is also one that points to them. I mean he just kept writing these works that 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 pointed at the the thing that he was the most kind of tormented about and the thing that he that he was hiding the most. What I do think is interesting is that when Bridcut's book came out uh, in two thousand and Five uh, with the full cooperation of the ongoing Britain Peers Foundation and the Britain Peers Estate. Uh, it was received, even in the right-wing press in Britain, um, not only very well, but also with a lack of sensationalism. The review in the Daily Telegraph wrote, quote, Nowadays, a known homosexual who sought out the company and affection of boys would probably end up in a police register or behind bars. In treating Britain's fondness for the young of his own sex as something more than lip-smacking pedophilia, This book does him service both as a man and as an artist. And the review in the London Times wrote, Mm -hmm. Many pedophiles were abused as children, and their dangerous desires are motivated by hatred. Britons were motivated by love, which may have been to a large extent narcissistic, and as the book reveals, often ended with an abrupt withdrawal of affection when the boy grew up, but which was fundamentally benign. Uh, and I think that these reviews, even from right-wing newspapers, really do emphasize what a national figure he became to get this level of the benefit of the doubt, even from uh, the very homophobic right-wing press. Yeah. But in the 1950s, he was not getting that level of benefit of the doubt. Um, and uh, at that time, the fervently anti-gay Home Secretary, Sir David Maxwell Fife. Um, was urging more enforcement of anti-homosexual laws. Uh, In 1953, Britain was visited by the police uh, and discussed at one point the possibility that peers might have to enter into a sham marriage, uh, but in the end, nothing was done. In the 1960s, uh, the Alderper Festival uh, did a big expansion uh, and built a new concert hall into old Victorian Maltings buildings in the village of Snape, hence, Snape Maltings Concert Hall. The Snape Maltings Concert Hall was opened by the Queen at the start of the 20th algebra festival in 1967, was destroyed by fire two years later and was rebuilt and the Queen attended the second opening performers, the performance. And so Britain at this time is becoming more and more the house composer of the British nation. In 1962, uh, he premiered his piece War Requiem, which was commissioned to mark the consecration of the new Coventry Cathedral built after the 14th century structure was destroyed in World War II. That reconsecration was an occasion for a for a major arts festival, and Britain was inspired by a commission which gave him complete freedom in deciding what to compose and so he took the Latin mass for the dead and then interspersed nine poems about war by the English poet Wilfred Owen, so it has a fairly traditional uh, orchestral choral requiem setting with a chorus and an orchestra and solo singers. Britain added a boy choir um, and then he assigned to the uh, choruses into the soprano, the Latin requiem text, and to the two men, the poems by Wilfred Owen. Owen was born in 1893 and was killed in action, uh, in November 1918 during the crossing of the Somme Canal in France a week before the armistice. He was unknown at the time of his death, but has come to be revered as a great war poet and was himself gay. To quote from one of the poems Britain sets in the war requiem, move him into the sun, gently its touch awoke him once at home, whispering of fields unsown. Always it woke him, even in France, until this morning and this snow. If anything might rouse him now, the kind old son will know. The intent was that at the opening performance, the soloists would be the fantastically named Russian soprano Galina Vishnevskaya, the English tenor Peter Pears, of course, and the German baritone Dietrich fischer Disco to demonstrate the spirit of post-war coming together, Uh, but Vishnevsky was, in the end, not permitted to travel to Coventry for the event, although she did end up making the world premiere recording in London a year later. On the title page of the score, Britain quoted Wilfred Owen. Again, my subject is war and the pity of war. The poetry is in the pity. All a poet can do today is warn. In 1988, this music became the basis for a screen adaptation by the British film director Derek Jarman. The film is also called War Requiem and uses the original recording as its soundtrack. As he moved into his late style, uh, Britain's music became almost unbearably spare um, and laden with emotion in every perfectly chosen note. His work was often at this time influenced by uh, Javanese gamelan music and became more avant-garde, but as I said, never crossed over into that world of electroacoustic, acoustic mathematics inspired, rather, and as it turns out, CIA funded experimentation going on at Darmstadt, Stockhausen and Babbitt were working, Britten remained a figure of the old world in his tweed suits in the country, even if he was a modernist. In September of 1970, Britain began his last major work, the opera Death in Venice. Um, the libretto was by the same woman, Mifanwi Piper, who had adapted the Henry James novella, Turn of the Screw. Britain was told uh, that he needed a heart operation to live for more than two years, uh, and worked urgently to complete the score before going into hospital for surgery. After the completion of the opera, which his friend, Colin Graham said, went deepest into his own soul. He went to the National Heart Hospital and uh, got a valve replacement. Then he had a slight stroke, which brought his career as a performer to end. He wrote several works throughout the mid 1970s. Um, and in June, 1976, accepted a life peerage. He became Baron Britain of Aldebar in the County of Suffolk. Um, in November of 1976, Britain realized that he could no longer compose. His 63rd birthday, at his request, uh, Rita Thompson, a friend, organized a champagne party and invited friends to say goodbye. And Rostropovich made a farewell visit a few days later. Uh, Mr. Rostropovich, the husband of Galina Vishnevsky, and a composer for whom Britten had uh, a cellist for whom Britain had written pieces. Um, and then, uh, on December 4th, 1976, Britain died of congestive heart failure. A recent controversy is the statement in Britain's 2013 biography that the composer's heart failure was due to undetected syphilis. Uh, in response, Britain's cardiologist said that Britain was screened for syphilis, but Kilday continued to maintain that it was the only thing that made Britain's symptoms make sense. Uh, the authorities at Westminster Abbey offered Britain a burial plot there, but Britain had made it clear to Piers that he wished his grave to be at Alderbury Parish Church, uh, side by side with that of Piers. And the memorial service uh, on the 10th March, 1977 at Westminster Abbey uh, had at the head of its congregation, Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mother. And I'll end with the last words that the chorus sings in Peter Grimes after the fisherman has drowned his own boat in order to escape persecution for the death of another one of his boys. Or measured cadence of the lads who tow, some entered hoy to fix her in their row, or hallowed sound that from the passing bell to some departed spirit bids farewell. In ceaseless motion comes and goes the tide, flowing it fills the channel broad and wide, then back to sea with strong majestic sweep. It rolls in ebb, yet terrible and deep. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible, and we're so grateful for all of your support.
0: And especially thanks to our patron listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible.
1: It really wouldn't be. Um And so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh some very beautiful t-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, And you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, We don't work with a media company, we don't put anything behind a paywall, we just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do, and we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough, so you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Thanks,
0: Ben. Um... I know. I knew next to nothing about him before before this, um, other than the name of um, Peter Grimes. Um, and uh, yeah, what a fascinating life, and, and really troubling in a lot of ways. Um, the relationship between his his work and um, his his unha- unhealthy, potentially abusive uh, interest in in teenage boys. It's a very difficult question to talk about in terms of, um, how to, how to re, how to approach people's, um, legacies, their creative legacies, um, in light of sort of information that you later discover, I guess. Um, but the one, one thing that's particularly troubling to me, I mean, obviously, you. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know anywhere near enough about the music and, and you, you, I take it on, on your word that it's incredibly important and, and moving music, but then that he, he continually returns to these themes throughout his life and makes, his, makes pederastic behavior and desire, um, like the central, the central to his artistic production in that way. I mean, um, it's the, the 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 very theme of death in Venice, which he's producing right at the end of his life mm-hmm. um, by Thomas Mann, who also had extremely, so there's, there's some extremely troubling rumours around his um, attitudes towards his own children. Uh, but but the, the theme of death in Venice is exactly this form of um, excitement over uh, uh, um, this illicit pederastic desire, no?
1: Yes and no. Um I mean, I think in a way it makes it more troubling uh, and it makes it more difficult to divorce from the work. In the other way, the work is in some way our clue to, is a, in one way, a clue to deciphering it. And in the other way, in the way that the work continually engages with the moral complexity of these characters, like at no point in any of Britain's work is there a heroic pederast who pursues pure love And that goes well. Um, And there are such operas. For example, the opera Mm. King Roger uh, by the gay Polish uh, count composer Karol Szymanowski, in which um, King Roger, a sort of mythic king, falls in love with a 13-year-old shepherd boy and finds this kind of transcendence for his people. Um, And in contrast to that, an opera like Peter Grimes, where um, the... Moral complexity and in fact the horror of the relationship with the boys is constantly surfaced It's not that the fact that Britain wrote that work Excuses Britain's own behavior, but the Mm -hmm. fact that Britain's greatest works engaged with some of his own greatest flaws in a way that actually Engaged with the moral complexity of his own behavior um, I'm not saying it excuses him uh, but I do I do think it actually in a way makes it easier to engage with those works given what we know about Britain rather than harder. Does that make any sense?
0: It does um, make sense. And I and guess I'm not I saying guess that
1: anybody should be, you know, strapped down and forced to listen to Peter Grimes. Uh you know, uh, nor am I saying that we should um simply or neatly separate the artist from the work, um, because I think Britain himself made that kind of impossible. Um what I am saying is that I don't think that I don't think he lets himself off in the work at all. Um,
0: yeah, and which which others which others did from from the beginning. At, uh, yeah, which which other gay um, writers and composers and playwrights et cetera, did write write off right?
1: Well, yeah, well, they did many of them. Um, and I mean, what I would encourage is, and again, I mean, we put a content warning on the top of this episode, so I think listeners who who would uh, potentially be really put off by this, won't even still be with us, uh, but if you are, then you don't have to go listen to this, but if you're curious at all, the 1969 BBC studio film of Peter Grimes is on YouTube in its entirety, uh, with subtitles, which are want. I mean, it's sung in English, uh, but uh, it's very, very well done. Britain's conducting, uh, Peter Pears plays Grimes, a little old, but um, you know, it's the thing that was written for him, so it's still a very convincing performance. Um and I think you'll you'll see yourself um the degree of moral complexity in, in the work and in the score and, and the way that, that it leaves you um both deeply moved and also completely unsatisfied because everybody uh everybody in that piece is a villain. Grimes mm. is uh basically I mean pederasty isn't specifically thematized, but there's a, there's a there's a way, and I'm not the first person to to kind of read Uh, a little bit of pederasty into Grimes' relationship with the boys or into some of the intimations and some of the ways that it's talked about in the score. Um, You know, basically, in order to make more money, Grimes is working these boys to death. Um, At the same time, he's being accused by the townspeople of sexually abusing and murdering them, which he hasn't technically done. Um, Mm. And he then drowns himself, and the response of the townspeople is essentially... Like at one point they they see his boat drowning. Um, that's just before the chorus comes in. One of the townspeople says, "What boat? I don't see a boat." You know, just like let him go.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, and also it's very similar, I guess, to the end of um, Death in Venice, where where Ashenbach, um, because of his desire for Tadzio, stays in Venice during this uh, typhoid is it typhoid fever? Cholera and con- cholera. Sorry, of course, uh, and and contracts it, and and you know, the last scene is him. Um, he could have gotten away, but then like his desire is the thing that in the end um, kills him. And he's there, you know, sweating on the beach at the end, watching Tadzio playing in in the waves as he, as he suffers his punishment for his desire.
1: Yeah. And I think Bridcut's book really does emphasize the extent to which these relationships, I think it really does lay out what we can know about these relationships. And then we can make the decisions that we want to make. Um, Mm. I don't think that Bridcut suppressed any evidence. Uh, I do think that he writes off, for example, the encounter with uh um, Henry Morris. Um I think he lets Britain off far too easy for that. I think it's you know, that's that that is evidence of something, um, clearly. Um and yet um I, I don't think that there's a there's a pattern of I don't think that Britain had a pattern of sexually abusing children. I do think that he had a pattern of having uh inappropriate relationships with them which is difficult to yeah. say without saying that you're without sounding like you're saying the former
0: yeah um i feel like this subject is something that 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 has been in the background and inevitable to to come up in in previous uh in previous seasons of of bad guys and it's obviously like a very difficult one to talk about because um it's kind of the original accusation against gay men is this, um, is, is the accusation of pedophilia, um, of, of child, of child sexual abuse, um, which, uh, and for obvious reasons, uh, especially, uh, in recent decades, um, has been a, a, an important part of, uh, gay activism has been destroying that myth that, that gay men are sort of pretty have a predilection towards being, um, Sexual abusers, mm-hmm. and yet, throughout the nineteenth and twentieth century, gay culture has re- consistently returned to those themes. Um, I mean, in my mind, part of that is because of the start of like a sort of homosexual and a Uranian and gay culture in the nineteenth century is about looking back towards classical Greece as the justification for the fact that these 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 forms of desires of body have always existed. And within uh, the culture of ancient Greece, um, pederasty was an institutionalized form of relationships between older and younger men. Um, is that is that the core that has normalized it, or is it more complicated than that? Is it also this thing that they, because they were put together historically, um, they were conflated by sort of heterosexual mainstream society? There's been. Um, uh, certain men who have found it difficult to uh make the moral distinction if both are abject crimes and yet they feel one very clearly like then then making that distinction that now is is uh, extremely clear in our discussion of it, it was much harder when both were uh, I forbidden I,
1: I mean in the, in Germany for example it was forbidden by the same law um and there was in the kind of sexual liberation movement, not only in Germany, but many other places, a, uh, an overly optimistic, um, I would say, idea about the liberation of children's own sexuality, uh, which was then taken advantage of by pedophiles to abuse children in some cases. Um, And that's also something that's difficult that's still kind of difficult to talk about um, and to address, Um, but it must be talked about and it must be addressed. Um, I think the other thing that we can talk about here is the changing definition of the child between the beginning and the end of the 20th century. Um, The category of the child is, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, classed and aged somewhat differently than it is at the end of the 20th century. By the end of the 20th century, the child would become a kind of universal category and certain kind of Victorian ideas about um, the childhood as a state of purity or innocence um, are more universalized. And the, and the idea that children need to be protected is more is more universalized. And I think that's also something that, because I think sexualities are socially constructed, I think how you feel about the category of the child uh, is probably going to be related to the extent to which you uh, police your own or develop your own sexual feelings, which is not to say that I don't believe that there are many people who experience strong pedosexual attractions about which they can do nothing, um, or about which they against which they they try to fight, um, but. I do think that in the context of, for example, 1870s Germany, um, sex with, for example, a 15-year-old has a somewhat different meaning when the average age of heterosexual marriage is also lower. Um, again, I'm not saying these changes to the definition of the child are for, are for the worse. Um, and certainly by the time that Britain was an adult and among the people that he was around, these categories were fairly clear. I'm just somewhat complicating the story in terms of the emergence of um, homosexuality, panics about pedosexuality, and pedosexuality at the same time. Yeah, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it, yeah, it makes a lot. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I do think in 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 having these discussions and. Um putting him into historical context perhaps um, it's still very important to like really acknowledge within within those uh, frameworks that um there always were sexual predators um with a with a sexual interest in children who would take advantage of not just those changing uh, the confusion around those changing uh, categorizations, but also much wider around um, uh, take advantage of much wider sort of social prohibitions on, on, uh, on these things, you know, and um, that's to an extent what I am concerned about, maybe concerned that I can't do anything about it, but that that makes, makes me feel very um, uncomfortable in the discussion of Britain's sexuality is the degree to which no other adults Particularly, seem to be stepping in to um, to protect these children, and and the the children, and what those children's experiences were. I guess um, needs to be foregrounded in in the story. That like the story is not simply this man's battle with uh, with his potential um, pedophilic or pederastic tendencies, and how that manifests in his music, but also the way that might have affected. The lives of these these boys, whether whether or not he acted on it, um, his relationship like he should not he should not have been sharing his bed with those children. Other adults should have been intervening to ensure that he couldn't do that. And while he may never have acted upon it, that that was st- is still going to have um, effects upon those children, unknown effects in their future lives. I guess.
1: Yeah, and that's what I think. The Bridcut book does so well because Bridcut did extensive interviews with all of these boys and really did allow each one of them to define the relationship that they had with Britain and what that relationship meant to them um, hmm. and Bridcut totally refrains from making any kind of conclusion he's very very hands off. He just sort of foregrounds how each of those people identified what they wish to identify or said what they wish to say. And then the reader is allowed to come to their own conclusions. And my conclusion is, I think, my conclusion is, I think, different from Bridcutts in several several ways.
0: Um, But also that seems to me to be like important historical and also sort of ethical piece of work in terms of and rare for these these figures who become so important as cultural figures and um, uh, have this veneration to give those those uh, boys just the uh, the space in which to uh, discuss and um, have heard their experience of, the, of this man who otherwise his fame because of the nature of the sort of fame cultural machine would have otherwise um, never been heard.
1: Certainly. Um...
0: I mean, I think it's also important to note that
1: these were often people who were involved in Britain's various productions and premieres and in his professional life. So there's also a mixing of personal and professional and these sort of intimate friendships that that a lot of people would be uncomfortable with today, even if they were adults, you know, to be having a relationship with somebody who is then singing the lead role in your new opera. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Regardless of... uh, Regardless of whether they're adults or not, and, and in this case, they weren't.
0: So I think, um, yeah, given the nature of that sort of discussion, I don't think it's really appropriate necessarily to do to end it in the usual way. Um, but if people are interested in reading further or or interested in the sources you used for this um, for this podcast, I mean, you mentioned one Booker repeatedly, but are there, are there other sources? Yes.
1: Yeah, so there is, as I mentioned, Britain's Children um, by, uh, Bridcut. Uh, there's also a 2013 biography of Britain, uh, by Paul Kilday, um, or Kildy. Uh, there's an article in the Hudson Review by the conductor James Conlon, uh, that I will link to, uh, as well. That's more about Britain's musical style. Um, I would also recommend the wonderful book, When Brooklyn Was Queer by Hugh Ryan. And that's where the write-up of that wonderful house on seven Midday Street, uh, in the 1940s, uh, came from. Um, and then as I mentioned, I'll put this in the show notes, um, just to let Britain's work, uh, speak, uh, the 1969 BBC studio, uh, version of, um, Peter Grimes, uh, starring Peter Pierce in the title role conducted by, uh, Benjamin Britain, uh, is a remarkable document of their working collaboration, um, and of, uh, one of the most, uh, remarkable pieces of, uh, lyric theatre of all time I think
0: Thank you very much Well you've been listening to Bad Gaze My name's Hugh Lemmy, you can find me online at Hugh Lemmy And you can find me at Ben Writes Things The show at Bad Gaze
1: Pod And our website at badgazepod.com Where you can also find t-shirts A link to our Patreon and an episode archive See you next week Bye Bye
0: Bad. Bad Bad Bad
1: Bad game Bad pa Bad 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 Bad